from WGDR in Plainfield and WGDH in Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. The following program is brought to you in living color on WGDR. Good morning. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. My guest this morning is Miles Schertz. He is the author of Conscious Communication, Beyond Perception. He's a couples counselor, mediator. He has a retreat center up in the Northeast Kingdom in Stannard, Vermont, called Sky Meadow Retreat. And today we're going to be talking about relationships and who knows what else. So again, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour and good morning, Miles. Good morning, Tonio, and good morning, listeners. serendipitous timing with the music (laughs) (laughs) so how are you doing it's been it's been several months since you since you've been here that's right last november i think we decided yeah so i thought we'd start with a piece that i wrote uh for a newsletter we sent out uh last month and this was your suggestion tonio to to kind of focus the conversation today <clears throat> so I titled this piece, Are Relationships Important? I realize in reading it over, it could just as well have been titled, Who Needs a Heart If a Heart Can Be Broken? <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a great line. <laughs> what a great question to ask ourselves. Yeah, so that's the... Something we've been... I think we, we have as, as a species, we've been asking that for a long time. Yeah, exactly. So that's the... <clears throat> that'll help focus the discussion this morning. Um, so... Uh, this writing piece that I'm about to read, it's short, it'll just get his focus, and it started with, the idea came from, I'm raising three teenage daughters, and uh, two of them, you know, they're of the age when they we talk a lot about their future, what they're going to be when they grow up, and um, what's really interesting about two of my daughters is that the concept of being a parent or having a relationship never comes up. And, and and my wife and I don't push it. You know, it's for in our judgment, it's a perfectly legitimate choice. They could be a parent or not. They could <clears throat> have a committed relationship or not. Um, but it's curious that they never talk about that. And so once in a while, you know, I'll mention it to one of my two daughters. You know, what, well, what about having a family, being, you know, having a relationship? And two of them will adamantly say, um, no, no. I plan to live alone. How how old are they, by the way? Uh, so the youngest is fifteen. Uh, middle daughter is sixteen. So that's the fifteen and sixteen year old. Great age. Yeah, <laughs> really good age. They're very they're very certain about the rest of their life, <laughs> and they're very certain <clears throat> that they're going to live alone, uh, no matter what. So, um, f- which you know, as a parent, is kind of disconcerting <laughs> because. <laughs> And I find myself wanting to immediately jump in and say, oh, but you're, you know, you really, you're not really going to want to live alone. You're not going to be happy living alone. Um, And then I stop myself from saying that. And I realize I just try to take in what they're saying, which is um, what I 
try to teach other people to do. <laughs> and, and what they're saying is, when I really listen to it, is that it's really hard to get along with other people. They watch, you know, they, they, my wife and I don't hide our conflicts from them. We, we don't fight in front of them necessarily, but they recognize when there's tension. And <laughs> as in any intimate relationship, there's tension. Uh, they see relationships around them. Um, and the difficulty with adult adult relationships and also with their own friends. Uh, and they come to the conclusion that, no, it's way, way easier to live alone and just not deal with people. Uh, so I thought about this and I realized that, we, you know, we live in an age, what I call the age of unprecedented independence, when it's actually physically quite possible to live alone. We can get our needs met. Uh, living alone and so why bother with other people if that's an option um, and then to answer that question why bother with other people <laughs> just look at your habits most of us reach out to other people a lot whether we do it by you know we might do it by telephone we might do it with um, meeting people in person friends and family we use Twitter we use Facebook YouTube email we're in touch with people a lot throughout the day, most of us, not all of us. And so what's up with that? Why, you know, why do we, on the one hand, maybe think, I, I don't need people, and on the other hand, spend so much time trying to connect with people? <clears throat> and the answer, I think, is pretty obvious. We, we need people. Mm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a way that people enhance our lives. So you know, we crave their company, we seek their appro- approval, we want their support, Generally speaking, I'll speak for myself, I feel better when I'm connected to other people. And for me, there's also the, the, the counterpart, which is I, I tend to feel more anxious, sad, depressed, scared, lonely when I'm alone, when I, when I don't feel connected. Um, but then, of course, when I try to connect with other people, <laughs> especially close relationships, there's conflict. And it's and it's um, inevitable, I think, and it's not a bad thing. I think I think that part of my work as a mediator and the book I wrote, Conscious Communication, deals with, you know, why? What's the reason we have so much conflict? We can we may get into that this morning, and then what what do we do about that? You know, what how do we approach it? So, to sum this introduction up, one approach is just don't have relationships. Which is my daughter's conclusion, <laughs> but she's not. She's not avoiding all relations. She's talking about in more intimate relationships, right? Yeah, but I mean, the, the, you know, when when I say when they say I'm going to live alone, what they mean is I'm not going to let anyone get too close. Exactly, that's what they're saying. Right. So what, uh, we're not going to let anyone get under our skin. Yeah, we're not. So to we're speak. not going to let anyone have that kind of power in our lives over us over to us, affect us to affect us right. or influence and right. which is understandable yes you know it's understandable <laughs> we've <laughs> i i my you know what i like to say about conflict in our culture now is that our i think our number one response to conflict in in at least in the united states from what i've seen is avoidance yes we, absolutely we withdraw or we leave or we move physically, mm-hmm. and and it's and the, when I ask why, the answer is because we can. Right. We're 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 an incredibly mobile society, you know. Right now, especially if you think about um, the way that a lot of us connect with people electronically, it doesn't matter where you are physically. 
So we tend to distance ourselves as a way of dealing with conflict. And, to, you know, to be very clear, some of the time, that's, I think that's a reasonable and maybe even healthy response. If, there's, if, you're, being, if you're being threatened, if you're feeling, um, you know, if the, if the relationship is hurting you, and, and you really, it's not getting better, and you can see that over time, it's really diminishing your sense of self-worth, then maybe leaving that relationship is a good thing to do. If um, And sometimes in all relationships, what I call temporary timeouts are really important. There's times when we just, uh, things will get better if we can get away from each other for a short period of time. But in our culture, I think we tend to use that tactic way too much and we tend to avoid and withdraw and distance ourselves and the result and this is something that that you can ask yourself listeners the the result is that we end up feeling lonely and alone and disconnected and isolated and i think for humans for us human beings that's one of the most painful circumstances is when we feel that we're going through life carrying the weight all by ourselves and it's interesting how we we have this species-wide habit of putting ourselves in this damned if we do and damned if we don't situation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the impossible situation of, of being human, and it comes up in many different forms. So today we're, we're talking about that particular um, between a rock and a hard place, which is, and the way I like to say it is, I can't live with people, but I can't live without them. Right. <laughs> there's there's so many metaphors and cliches that go with this because it's it's as old as humanity. It it is, and I know this from my travel in the third world. And you had mentioned that it might be appropriate to mention that I was in India a little bit this winter. Um, I love when I get the opportunity, and and I've have had the great fortune in my life to be able to do that um, from time to time to travel to third world countries to see how, you know, really how differently people live outside the United States. And one of the things that I notice in Asian cultures today, and it was even more so 25 or 30 years ago, <clears throat> is that they're rarely ever alone, ever. They live in family units that are extended family units. People do not move around um, most people are still living in the in the village or town where they were born on this in the same neighborhood even where they were born <clears throat> they don't have the same mobility and sense of personal independence and they don't value that as much although that's changing that's changing a lot right now in Asia but when I go there what I notice is that people are they they value their family they value the the neighborhood, the connections, their friends, and they don't stray very far from those people because they need them. They know that they need them. And in our society, we've, um, we've lost that. So what we do is, you know, we value independence and personal freedom more than we value connection with other people. And I think when I look at the root of our, what I call our cultural disease, and I don't mean to particularly put down our culture. I think every culture has its own cultural disease. But when I look at our own cultural disease, Western, United States, North American, I think a big piece of it is that we've put personal independence and sovereignty and individuality on such a high pedestal that we've sacrificed family connection 
um, the sense of belonging that's a that's just as important a need and now I think a lot of us have lost the ability or the or the natural capacity to get along with other people and in my judgment we we need to we need to relearn that and the beautiful thing is we can come at it from a new angle so the skills I teach I call conscious communication skills what they're what they're designed for is to be close to other people to have a very intimate close heart felt connection a sense that of belonging that meets that deep human craving to belong and at the same time maintain our independence and individuality and that's something we haven't known how to do Uh, i don't think it's come before us as a as a human society that those two things are equally important individuality and connection so in asia in these more closely knit families, how how well do these people get along within their families? Is there much conflict? You know, that's a really good question that I am not in a position to answer because okay. I, I I have lived with families um, and I can I can take a stab at that. But one of the things that I have to own is that as a visitor, which I always am there because I've no, I, I wasn't born there. I, I don't live in those cultures and. Usually I don't speak the local language well enough to really understand what they're saying to each other. Um, I certainly don't see the conflict, but then again, if I had a visitor in my home, when I have a visitor in my home, they don't see our conflict either. So that's you just have to keep that in mind. But what I notice, and I have lived, again, I've lived for months with families in Asia, is is a... really, I think, incredible capacity to get along with each other. And it just comes from necessity. You know, I lived with a family where there was, let's say, six people in a very small house. And every evening, the the bed, the living room would turn into the bedroom and everybody would roll out their mat and sleep on the floor, including me. And when you live under those conditions, you, you work it out. You know, there's, there's tension, but it gets worked out. And there's not nearly the amount of tension that I experience in our culture. Um, and I'll just say, I, th- I think the reason for that is that we've, we've gone so far into personal independence that, and we really value each person having their own separate values, their own feelings and their own needs. And it, one of the ways that Asian cultures avoid that conflict, and I think our culture did, say, a couple centuries ago, a couple hundred years ago, is that there just wasn't room for people to be that individualized. And that's um, so. And I think it's a natural evolution for humanity. So, you, I think this uh, started a moment ago when you said humans have always had that craving for independence. My my judgment is we have, but we haven't had the luxury of being able to act it out. In our society today, look at look at United States, North American society today, and I I argue that this we are we're in an era of unprecedented personal independence. We we can act out that impulse for complete and total autonomy as no other I judge no other people on planet Earth have ever been able to do. And our technology not only supports it, but it. It propels us in the in that direction. It, I think it does. Um, think of the personal car. Just think of a personal car. Exactly you that, get, and then the internet, Facebook, yeah. email, right. where you can literally isolate yourself from everybody and yet communicate within a very controlled medium. Yeah, that's exactly right. You 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 have your own space, your own 
laptop, your own device, your own car. I didn't think of Facebook and internet that way, but it's exactly what it does. So you're in a very safe, controlled environment, and from there, you relate to other people. Um, that's really unprecedented. You and know? I just had a conversation yesterday with, with a client who was telling me how she av- she pretty much avoids most of the people she knows, but she'll go onto Facebook and check out what's going on in their lives so that she doesn't have to deal with you know, listening to their stories, their their ups and downs. I think most of us tend to avoid wanting to be exposed to other people's downs. And we experience a lot of remorse and regret when we actually share our down moments. Like she was lamenting how how she saw a bunch of people and she was she was in a, in a state of disarray and, and wasn't feeling well and, and she was very concerned that oh, everyone got a really bad image of her. <laughs> 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 and I, I can totally understand that. Mm-hmm. And when you're young, when you're a teenager in school, you're constantly going through this. It's, it's like a terror. It's, you're being terrorized by, this, by the self-image notion and always trying to present a good face selling yourself as as something that you aren't that you aren't necessarily you, you aren't you necessarily aren't or i'm not using the right combination of words but yeah there's this crisis of of self image and and that just adds to that complexity yeah so let's talk about that for a moment um one of the things we get from other people that i think we are dependent on other people for in a way that may not be healthy is approval Mm. recognition that's what you're talking about yes and look at your life look at the context if you're following this conversation think about your life and think about how these dynamics are playing out in your life probably something like your friend you know i don't really want to engage in conversation all the time or maybe rarely because I don't know what's going to come up. I don't know what this person is going to want to talk about. Um, But I want to feel in some way that they approve of me. So what we're looking for other people for primarily is their recognition and approval. Uh, We don't necessarily want to go deeper than that and or we don't know how. And we can talk about that in a moment. But the thing I want to highlight here is that need for approval that drives a lot of our um, that's that's what takes us out of our cave, if you will. You know, I mean, a lot of us we would be quite happy living alone, except for that we need other people's approval. So when we go out into relationships, and that seeking approval is our primary, often unconscious motivation, I think it creates it sets up an unhealthy dynamic because. Number one, everybody's doing it all at once. We're all seeking each other's approval. And number two, you're not ever going to get enough that way. (laughs) In other words, some people will like you. And this is what you're talking about, like, for example, with teenagers in high school. Some people will like you and some people won't like you. And it changes. And it changes. For no apparent reason. For no apparent reason. (laughs) It changes. And and it can change very dramatically. Very dramatically. From one moment to the next. From one moment to the next. Um, And it's it's crazy-making. It's it's totally crazy-making. I I can speak a little bit about uh, 
a personal divorce, my first marriage and my first divorce changed on a dime from, you know, I love you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you to I hate you, I never want to see you again. And it changed in the course of a week from one to the other. And I, it took me years to recover from that. Um, and part of my recovery was w- what I want to speak about now is I think to have a healthy relationship, to be able to stand, to connect with other people in the way that we really want to, in, in a way that really feels good and a sense of con- a real connection and belonging, we have to not be desperately looking for approval for them, from them. And the only way to do that, and there's two ways to do it. One is to suppress your need for approval and pretend you don't. I don't think that's a really uh, sustainable way to do it. And the other way is to begin to source your approval from within yourself. And I thought about this driving down here today, that I might say this on the radio and how cliche that sounds. So I want to just acknowledge that, that for those of us involved in personal growth in any form, we've heard this so many times, you know, you have to like yourself. You have to have a relationship with yourself before you can have a relationship with other people. What I want to clarify and elaborate, because I think that'll help take it out of the cliche form, is that what I mean by that is that to be at peace with with yourself, to have a sense of um, self-acceptance that you have to work on. It's not just, I love myself, I love myself. It's, it's wh- when there's nobody around and I'm by myself, can I go inward with my attention and feel my goodness, feel the essence of who I am as something very positive and very good? And it's not, that's way beyond affirmations or thoughts about being good. It's a sense of feeling your own presence, feeling your, noticing your heart beating, noticing your body breathing, noticing that you're noticing that that you're conscious, you're aware that there's a there's a essence of you that really in in the in the clearest sense is not good or bad. It just is. And the fact that it is is undisputable. And so there's this way that we can touch base with that essence. I do it and I teach other people to do it through the practice of meditation. And to me that's the essence of meditation is closing your eyes, being in a a quiet environment, going inward with your attention instead of outward, and beginning with something as simple as noticing your body breathing. Listeners, right now, you could do this. Just notice what position your body's in. You might be in a car listening to this. You might be at home. You're sitting on something probably, or you're standing up. Feel it. Feel your feet on the ground. Feel your butt on the chair or in the, in the car seat. Feel your hands. What, what are they doing? Just relax your body you know, soften, that's recognizing yourself. It's that simple. And when, when you, as you do that, as you practice that, some people call that mindfulness. It's absolutely what meditation is about. And it's that simple. You start to feel okay about yourself. There isn't a story that goes along with it. It's just, oh, I'm, I'm awake. I can feel my aliveness. I can feel the the oxygen the air coming in and out of my my body and that is self acceptance on the most basic level and once you and that takes some practice it doesn't just 
happen automatically. You have to focus on it. And once you start to cultivate this sense of what I call being self-aware, very different than being self-conscious. Self-conscious is thinking about yourself in relation to how people see you. Self-aware is just relaxing your body and noticing that you're alive. (laughs) And in that self-awareness, there's no judgment. There's no self criticism or judgment that heavy thing that keeps hammering us from inside our own our own mind that we've internalized and that allows you to be a little less desperate to get that approval from other people and once you're starting to feel okay about yourself on that very simple non-conceptual way what i talk about in the book beyond perception it's beyond perception there is no concept that I'm good or bad. It's just, oh, I'm breathing. I'm here. And there's a goodness to it that you can't really dispute. Then when you reach out to other people, the the nature of the relationship is very different. You're not, you can, you can be more playful, you can be more light, you can really appreciate and enjoy people's company because we like, we like connecting with other people. If it's not too heavy or complicated. If we're coming from a relaxed place. If we're coming from a relaxed place. And that can only come when we have established a a sense of peace with ourselves, self-acceptance. Exactly. And we've all done many, we've made lots of mistakes, we've done awful things to people at times, and we have to earn that self-acceptance from ourselves through reflection and and honesty and many of us tend to repress or push out of our memory those memories of things that we've done in the past that we don't feel good about and that that remains in our bodies as a kind of tension that that doesn't leave by itself it's something that we have to we really have to face honestly and i think that's one of the things that we're most afraid of is revealing who we really are not so much it's not really who we really are but the things that we're not comfortable with about ourselves and being really totally honest about those things and as in with the meditation we have to do that with ourselves first once we can find peace with ourselves then then we can and we can relax with ourselves then then all other possibilities around us are available it's not going to, always going to be easy because we're going to be bouncing off other people who have their issues, and we still have our own issues. Even when we make peace with ourselves in regard to, to our past, which is a, a lifelong ongoing process, it's not like you, you acknowledge something from your past or something, a shadow aspect of yourself, and it's all good or it's all totally resolved in everything this is an ongoing relationship that we have with ourselves and and that we continue to have with everybody else around us and we're always seeing ourselves in others the good and the bad quote unquote good and the bad and we have this tendency to react in that push-pull way we're drawn to what we see as good in others and we're repelled by what we see as as not good in others, but those are all reflections of coming out of our own experience and conditioning. And it's complicated. Relationships are very complicated, and it requires a lot of inner work. And along with meditation, which is a wonderful way of 
relaxing ourselves and and coming to a place of, of at least physical peace within which our minds can settle and relax. There's also this process of self-inquiry, which I think really dovetails with meditation, is just, just as essential in terms of human sanity, personal self-sanity, and being able to have really um, clear or honest relationships with others. Yeah, let, I, I, I'm really glad you're bringing those up. So let, let's, I, I heard two things you talked about. One is the guilt, the, the heavy burden of guilt that all of us carry from things we've done in the past that we don't feel I would good say about. Shame, shame might be even remorse, and, and, and it can get to the, to the extreme of shame. Yep, shame. Yeah. Yep. And then the, the second piece, just so we don't lose those threads, is how we react to other people. Um, and I think they're very connected. But let's talk about the shame. Uh, so you're mentioning that meditation or self-inquiry um, is important, and I, and I totally agree. And I think it's worth highlighting that that's, I think, the reason that most of us are so afraid of the concept of meditation. Um, and I don't think fear is too strong a word there. You know, I teach a lot of people meditation, and I hear from a lot of people that I want to, I want to meditate, um, but I'm, I'm anxious or afraid. And I don't want to be stuck in a room with myself for too long. Because I don't want to be stuck in a room with myself for too long because the shame will overwhelm me. Those, those things that I've been avoiding yep. come up. They come up. And, they, and they, just, they always come up. They always come up. Whenever I'm sitting there quietly by myself, yep. all this crap all this shame comes up comes up so let's talk about that it's not um you know what you're saying tony is the way we've been dealing with the shame the way we've been dealing with our regrets the things that we've done that we don't feel good about is by suppressing them avoiding them we don't know any other way or rationalizing them doing doing some kind of dance where of avoidance of some sort. Sure. Avoidance of taking responsibility for it. Right. Rationalizing in one form that can take is blaming other people. So right. we're, we're either feeling incredibly guilty and ashamed or we're blaming other people, which I call that's the, the victim role. We're, we put ourselves in the victim role. And either way, those are attempts to clear the deck. But avoid. Avoid. Resist. Resist. <laughs> but they, the problem is they don't clear the deck. Right. What they do is they hide it. And then... What happens in meditation, and the reason I think about so many of us are are anxious about that concept of sitting alone quietly with myself and my own mind, is that all that stuff we're afraid it will come up, and indeed it will. The good news, so that's the perhaps the bad news. The good the good news <laughs> is that resolving those old um, difficult situations in your life is not as complicated as most of us think it is. Um, it's, it can't, it's, so the, the, the missing ingredient there is forgiveness. And a lot of us don't, I mean, forgiveness is a great concept. Whether you like it or don't like it, it sounds sort of, you know, simple. It's, it's not simple. It's something you, you have to experience directly. Your, your conceptual ideas about forgiveness 
don't mean anything until you've had a direct ex- visceral experience of it. Yeah, and how, how that works in meditation, that's what meditation does, is it allows... So this is really the technology of it, and, and it's why it's so beautiful, is that when you sit quietly with your own mind in a, in a focused way with a, with a, with a, um, a technique... You need some kind of a tool to do this. What will happen is all the buried things will come to the surface. And, and when you say a tool, you're talking about things like focus, being able to focus on your breathing exactly. to, grant, to keep you present. Yeah, I don't mean a physical tool. I mean a, a, a method, um, a way to... So in my, in my practice, the one I teach, you, you bring your attention back to the body breathing. In sitting and in walking meditation, you bring your attention to the feet touching the floor. So that's a mechanism. It's very simple, but it allows this process to happen. And then what happens is that all the stuff you've been denying and avoiding will come up. That's the bad news. The good news is that once it comes up, you can resolve it. And the really good news is that resolving it is way simpler than, than, our, than our thinking rational mind makes it out to be resolving it for example doesn't mean you have to fix it it doesn't mean you because you can't you can't go back and change what's happened it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do anything although sometimes um i'll I'll digress here for a moment to tell a personal story because i think it'll make it a little more interesting my oldest daughter who's 18 um came to me last two weeks ago and said you never tell me anything personal about yourself i said what do you mean she said well you know Every time I ask you to tell me bad things you did when you were younger, you won't tell me. And I said, well, of course I'm not going to tell you. And she said, well, why not? Are you, are you afraid of being vulnerable? Because she's old enough now to understand psychology. Dad, walk the talk. <laughs> yeah. You know, are you afraid of being vulnerable? What's, up? What's wrong? I said, no, I'm not afraid of being vulnerable. I don't think it's appropriate. What I told her is you've been asking me that since you were 10. And I don't think when you were 10, 11, 12, I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me. That's my personal parenting style. Other parents might choose a different boundary. But my boundary was, I don't think it's appropriate to tell you all the, all the mistakes I made when, you, when I was your age. I said, she said, well, then how am I going to know about you? And I said, well, now you're 18 and I feel differently. And I said, what do you, what do you want to know? And she said, what are you working on? Tell me something. It was a beautiful question. You know, she paused, and the first thing she wanted to know was, what are you working on? Tell me something that you've worked on, your personal growth. So I thought, wow, you know, that's a great question. And I went to the first thing I could think of in my life, the first time I recognized working on something. And what it, what it was, I told her, was that when I was in the monastery, I was 19 years old, I found my way to a Buddhist monastery in Asia, and I was in a silent meditation retreat for a month. I was obviously you know, in a lot of turmoil leading up to that. Once I got there, as we were talking about, all the stuff that I'd been repressing in my life came up. And one of the strongest things that came up was how I had treated my younger brother really badly. I was 19 at that point. He was 13 or 14. And when we were younger than that, I had bullied him. You know, I didn't physically beat him up. I'm, I'm glad to say that. I didn't, um, I don't remember calling him names, but I made him cry on a number of occasions. I, I, I you know, I, I tormented him emotionally. I know I did that. And all that came up when I was sitting in this monastery, and it was painful. It was really painful. And it cleared. 
So my my so this is what I told my daughter. Um, she had a really interesting response, which I'll talk about in a moment. But I want to finish this initial thought. So when those painful memories come up, the most important thing to do is relax, soften, because as you just said, they tend to they tend to. F- up here in the form of tightness in the body. And that's a beautiful thing. It's very visceral. It's very immediate. It's very tangible. And by relaxing that tight place in your body, so one of the things that happens when you meditate is you realize how tight you are. And you just didn't know it before because you weren't sitting quietly. And that's okay. And then when you notice your body tight, you start to relax it. And what's actually happening is you're forgiving. That is forgiveness. You're letting go. And so all this stuff came up around how I treated my brother. I felt horrible. It was really like I was in torment for some days. And then I softened. I did the practice. I relaxed. I let go. I realized it's over. Um, I also realized that there's something now that I can do. So there's something called making amends. It doesn't always turn out the way you think it will. But as soon as I got back to the United States, one of the first things I did was I wrote my brother a long letter and that we weren't living in the same place and I didn't have access to talking to him directly. I wrote him a long letter and it was a letter of apology and really owning what I'd done and just telling him how sorry I was. And I also made a, a, a commitment to myself that for the rest of my life, I would go out of my way to help him. And I, to this day, I'm still honoring that. And it's not out of guilt or shame. It's just out of a sense of, you know, I'm one of the people that made, instilled in him fear and uh, discomfort that he's going to be dealing with, whether he's conscious of it or not, for the rest of his life. And if there's anything I can do now as an adult to support him, I will in in a healthy way. So you can make amends. And the most important part is is relaxing, letting go of the of the tension that's accumulated around those things. And one of the benefits of doing that is that I'm much more conscious now of treating other the way I treat other people. I mean I'm I'm not um free of treating other people badly. I'm still quite capable of that. But I like to think that because of what I went through with my brother and the and the awareness around it, that I'm much more sensitive than I would have been before. So when you sit with these um, old memories that surface that are so uncomfortable, you have an opportunity to resolve them internally, which is simply a matter of softening your body, allowing what is what happened to be, not embellishing it with a story, either how bad you are or how how evil the other person was and how they deserved it, not adding any drama to it, just allowing the tightness in your body to relax and soften and going forward in your life from that point. And in my case, it, ter- it translated into, I think, being a much better brother to my brother. So <clears throat> I just want to finish with what my daughter said, um, which was quite astonishing. Um, and I never expected this and, and it almost brought me to tears. So I told her the story about my brother. And that was one of the things that I first times I remember working on myself and I was she's 18 I was 19 I was just a year older than her so I thought that would be appropriate to tell her and then she said she's thought about for a minute she said she has a younger sister who's two years younger and they're both living with us still and she said thought about it for a moment and she said um you know what I treat my sister that way now right now and I don't know why I do that 
And it was such a profound moment. You know, there was nothing that I needed to say as a parent at that moment. She got it fully. She took it in. I could see the look on her face that she was really um, trying to resolve that within herself. And I thought, what a beautiful moment. (laughs) I'm deeply moved by that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's amazing the power of of sharing human stories with each other when when we can really open open up and be totally honest about ourselves yeah. and our own follies and foibles. Yeah, so that you know that's the other piece of um you mentioned earlier how we try to put on the best face with other people. Um, and it's just worth mentioning. I don't, you know, I don't want to go too deeply into it, but that that takes a lot of effort. And I don't think it serves others. I it doesn't it, it doesn't serve us. I mean, that's what we're really doing it because we think it's going to serve us, but it doesn't, and it doesn't serve anybody else, and it doesn't enhance relationship. It it's essentially dishonest. It's dishonest. And, and it, you can't maintain it. This is something to consider, <laughs> that not only is it dishonest, or because it's dishonest, you can't maintain it once the relationship becomes too close. So what I like to say is look, look, at, how you, look at how you relate to casual acquaintances, people that you don't know very well. There's a formality there that keeps things clean. And, and easy. That's to go back to the very beginning of the show when I said my daughters are telling me they want to live alone. What they're saying is they want those easy, clean relationships to be the, the only relationships, mm-hmm. the ones where you see somebody once in a while and you get along great. And you mentioned how, how possible that is now with electronic social media. That, you know, I think that's the big draw of Facebook. I'm, I'm scratching my head because this whole thing in my life is just brand new um, and it seems to be taking the world by storm and I don't get it and it's and I think if I look at it what it does is Facebook email to some degree the the tweeting the chatting all the things that can happen electronically keeps relationships at a distance that allows a safety and a comfort level but does not allow a level of intimacy and it allows us to edit our image yeah to the world around us exactly. to present what we want to pre- present, yeah. not not everything. Yeah. We're not necessarily... Re- I've, I never see people revealing real stuff to each other. People aren't talking about the issues that they're... they're the difficult things that they're... they're they're sending these videos and they're saying these these sweet nothings to each other mm. for, the, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally they're they're sending profound videos, which are wonderful to send to each other, but there there isn't the the real deep intimacy and honesty. One thing I learned in the spiritual community that I had this wonderful opportunity to experience back when I was eighteen, when I first moved into, was the power of revealing our skeletons, all mm-hmm. the, the deep, dark secrets that we were ashamed of and that we dreaded and that we didn't know how to deal with. They were 
hanging up in our closet. Mm. We didn't know what to do with them. Mm. We didn't want to wear them in public, but they were still there. And we didn't want anybody to discover about ourselves. But there was an incredibly profound sense of peace and joy, even ecstasy, at being able to tell those stories, to share them with other people. And the way they, they did it, to make everybody feel comfortable and at a home and part of a community was that we'd go around in a circle and we'd all share things. There was this, this set of books with questions. It was like hundreds and hundreds of questions that basically covered the entire range of human experience, mm. knowing that each person has their own particular area of fixation of personal challenge and difficulty and we would go around in a circle and each person would answer the question like for example when have you done something that hurt somebody else like for example Hmm. when I was a young child I was a sandbox bully which and we have we have a number of similarities in our experience <laughs> in our history that that I've noticed and I think it has it has drawn us to a certain kind of work that we do in the world and a certain way that we relate to other people mm. and there's just a profound sense of joy that can be experienced when we share those when we reveal our dark secrets mm. especially to a bunch of people who are also who are open, who are listening, present with us, and are also sharing those things. Because then the community becomes like the deepest kind of family. And I have to say, these people were deep, were the deepest kind of family I've ever experienced mm, in mm, my life. Mm. And we have a caller. Good morning. Hey, Tonio. Yes. Good morning. And good morning, and your guest. Hi. I just want to say I hear all of this about the deep, and, you know, I think the deep is highly overrated. I think the core and the surface are essentially the same. That's my word of wisdom. Wait a minute. How, how, what do you mean by the, the, the core and the surface are the same? Do you mean they're part of the same thing? Or? We are who we are. You can read me. Just by seeing me, I can't hide anything from you when I'm sitting in your living room and I'm talking. If I'm going down some kind of self-glorification, you know it immediately. <laughs> you can't pull the, the wool over your eyes. Well, that that's true if you know somebody or if you've had enough life experience that you can see through another person. That's not true for everybody. Well, you're, you're correct that, that you have to have a certain trust in yourself to be able to hear the signals that you send. Yes. But ultimately, the core and the surface are the same. And all this depth is a little bit of self-promotion, in my opinion. What does your guest say about that? <laughs> that's a, that's a f- Fair question. <laughs> Do you want to stay on, or, or should we address you? Well, I'll, 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 I'll go off. I'm sure my, my phone doesn't sound very good. It's one of those cells. Yeah, it, it doesn't, but thank, thank okay. you for this. Okay, bye, and I'll be listening. Okay, bye-bye.
yeah, I don't I don't have an immediate response to that. It would have been it would have been I appreciated your asking for clarification. Um and I think what the caller was saying is that if we're sensitive, if we're intuitive, we can tell what's going on for someone on a deeper level, regardless of how they're presenting themselves. In other words, I think he suggested that if someone's being fake or uh, superficial, that it's obvious and mm-hmm. that we we don't get fooled by that. Um, sure, I totally concur. I think the nature of what we're talking about is why do we do that? You know, what what that's what you and I were just discussing is why do we put on that facade and how can we um, consciously present ourselves differently? And, and what you were just talking about was what you learned in this community where there was a, a form that encouraged and supported and, and um, emphasized people sharing their secrets, mm-hmm. the things they normally wouldn't share. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how, in a safe space. In a safe space. Very important. Safe space. Um, you described one of the things that made it safe. But the, the thing I want to highlight is that, which is something that I think is worth repeating, <laughs> is that it actually um, makes you feel way better. So you might start out feeling very uncomfortable sharing that with anybody. And if it's safe and if it's received in a way that is constructive and wholesome and and, um, healthy, you get a chance to release it. You don't have to carry it. And that's incredibly powerful. So what we were talking about just before that is the power of being vulnerable, of not showing the world your best face, but allowing yourself to be what I call genuine or real, which means, you know, a little more being a little more honest about what's actually going on for you. So I'm not sure how that relates to the caller's call, but question, but to say that the emphasis here is not so much um, whether the core and the surface are the same. I guess I would say, how do we, how do we make them the same? How do we how do we present ourselves to the world so that we're genuine? So, so that our surface reflects the core. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the surface reflects the or core. Or that, like still waters, right? You can see down to the bottom. Yeah. And to 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 really, I think the the point here that's really important to emphasize is that we normally don't consciously, intentionally don't show that we don't want people to see it. Because we're ashamed of it, and we're afraid of other people's judgment. And that, I think, alone is the biggest obstacle to connection. And it's one of the biggest reasons I think that most of us feel a sense of isolation from other people, is that we're afraid of other people's judgment. We're afraid to show what's really going on for us, because we're terrified of being judged. If they knew, if they only knew... What's go- what's really going on in my mind? No, you know, nobody would come near me. And it creates an even stronger need for approval yeah. from others. Exactly. In, in fact, it creates a fixation about receiving approval, since we refuse to give it to ourselves. We for, we res- refuse to let go of those issues in regard to ourselves. Yep. We're holding ourselves guilty and in jail in a kind of emotional psychological jail I would say and back going back to that community that I was part of instead of 
the approval dynamic, what happened was that all of a sudden we realized that not only did other people not judge us when we or reject us when we told those deep, dark stories, they, they actually accepted us even more. Hmm. Things opened up even more. Hmm. And people fell in love with each other huh. in a way that's, that isn't necessarily sexual or, or romantic. Hmm. It was the kind of falling in love that, that, that you can experience with, with like your children or your, your siblings if, you're, if you really are totally open with them and really, really deeply care about them. Hmm. That kind of yeah. that kind of experience, yeah. and it is extremely profound. Yeah, it is. To me, my experience, it's the richest thing that that I've ever experienced in this world. Hmm. Hmm. It's far more profound than most intimate relationships. Although, when you get to a certain level in inter- intimate relationships, and you've revealed yourself to your partner, you you get there as well. And if you and over time, if you can stay in that kind of state of love with each other, mm. which is quite challenging. Yes, and 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 it brings us back around to this topic that that we're talking about today. Yeah. So you you just circled back on two beautiful things. One is um, in your community how you felt accepted once you were able to share the the. Um, yucky stuff and find the connection, the sense of um, shared experience. So when we hide those mistakes, let's call them, from other people, and that's essentially what my daughter was saying to me, I realized, you know, was, you never tell me about your mistakes. When we hide those mistakes, and I, you know, I don't think I was hiding them from her as much as I was just judging that... As a parent, I don't think it's appropriate to share with young children your mistakes. That's not not all the time, you know, some of the time, but not as a as a rule. Um, so anyway, as adults, I think that's very healing if it's a safe place to do it. And you just described how that worked, and then you're also bringing it back to the original message here, which is I, I don't relationships are too difficult. You know, I just want to live alone, and what that for you know, people listening that can relate to that idea, which I think is most of us now. Most of us have experienced, I like to tell people, you know, I've had, I'm in my late 50s, I've had long chunks of time, you know, five, ten year periods when I've lived alone, and I've had long chunks of time when I've been married or lived with a partner. And what I notice now looking back is that the chunks of time when I lived alone, I was great. I was good, I was perfect, I was an excellent teacher, I was a great counselor, I had no worries, I had no issues, I was very lonely. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite perfect. (laughs) Not quite perfect. But but in terms of my self-image, it couldn't be better. As soon as I start living with a partner... I'm I'm a basket case, you know. I'm a, <laughs> I can't I can't do this. I can't do that. And it's not because my partner's overly critical. Um, my partners have been, you know, what I would call, you know, normal normally critical. We we tend to do that with each other, but it's because I can't hide that stuff. And that's the point I want to make here. So when 
what my daughters are saying is I don't want to get that close to people because then I won't be able to hide my, my stuff. Now, that, they're not consciously aware of that. I think most of us aren't consciously aware of it, and that's why we're talking about it, you and I, right now. I'd like people to be more conscious of that. That the, the, the biggest fear I think we have of getting close to other people is that we can't, we can't use the most common technique for feeling good about ourselves, which is denial anymore. And the point here is that, yes, that's true. And when you get close to people, it will be tumultuous in the beginning. There will be issues. There will be conflict. And I don't think that a good tactic is not to get close to people so you won't have that conflict. I don't think that's uh, the way we want to go. And that's actually, to me, that's the reason why we have intimate relationships is to bring up those things to the surface that we are unwilling to deal with on our own. When we become deeply, intimately involved with others, it becomes this issue that we have to deal with them in order to maintain, in order to even have the possibility of maintaining the relationship. No guarantee. It, that's exactly right. So it, 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 there's a pressure there um, that's inevitable. And part of my work is to give people the cr- encouragement and more than just encouragement, but but skills, tools. I mean, mm-hmm. so it, it's. I think what's really important to consider here is that n- very few of us know relationship skills. The, even the concept of a relationship skill for for some listeners, you might have heard me talk before. You might have studied some other forms, and you know what that means. But a lot of people wouldn't have a clue. My mother. It's not taught anywhere. It's it's not it's not taught in. K through 12 education. No. It's not taught in college no. at all. No. I mean, they teach psychology, they teach sociology, they teach history. So you hear stories of conflict and things like that, but they don't teach tools because that's considered the realm of self help. Self help. And self help <laughs> is fairly roundly denigrated in our society. Sure. So, what couple things to say about that? My mother, for example, wouldn't have a clue what that means, except a little bit from me, but otherwise she wouldn't. And my judgment is, in her generation, she didn't need them. There was no call for relationship skills. Relationships were simply about conforming to other people's expectations. And tradition. And tradition. Mm -hmm. It's a model that you fit yourself into. It's about conformity. And And buck up. And buck up. and Stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip (laughs) and just suck it up. And and so it's worth mentioning in that model, and there was a certain level of harmony there, Mm -hmm. way more than now, Mm -hmm. because people had defined roles. Everybody knew their place. Everybody knew their place. But the problem was that there was no room for personal feelings, emotions. There was no, and nobody knew how to deal with those. So my family, for example, was denial. There was no room for individuality, the thing we've been talking about in this program that's so important to us now. There was no room for individual needs and preferences, very little. Well, at least not, not on an emotional level. There was, there was still the worship of individuality in terms of the John Wayne image of it. Keep in mind, if, if we want to bring that in, that was men. Yes. Exclusively men. Yes. And relatively new. But we're men. We could we could deny the existence of, of the experience of women because it's foreign in a sense. Sure sure. I mean we we could we could we don't have to be talking about this as as men. We could be ba- you know basking in the individuality that's been granted to us for a much longer time than other people. Yes. Um the the thing though is that it's like democracy. 
it's not genuine unless everybody has it. Mm-hmm. And it, I think f- for those of us men listening to this that could recognize and I think appreciate, and we should, that we've had the access to that level of individuality and personal preferences much longer than, than women and other people in our society. But it's, it's not satisfying unless everybody has it, in my judgment. Well, I think as we, we, we expand our hearts and, and just our notion that other people matter or that we, we learn to love other people, and it, it becomes untenable. Yeah. It becomes more and more untenable sure. to see other people suffering or not having as much as we do. Yeah, yeah. So back to the theme that... Uh, that my parents' generation didn't need to be individuated. The the men were starting to, but in general, that wasn't important to them. That changed in our in a lot of the listeners on our lifetime, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that. So we're in a completely new paradigm. Some of the some of the earmarks of this new paradigm are equality, gender equality. We we want relationships where men and women have equal power. Most of us today acknowledge that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. We want relationships where individuality, individual feelings, emotions, and needs, basic needs, are matter. They're important. We want a relationship where we can be very intimate and cl- close, best friends with our partner, and be independent, have our own life. Those are very tall orders. They're very, it's a very huge shift in values in terms of, and expectations, what we want out of a relationship. And my simple message that I keep repeating, because I think we really need to get this, is that we need, we need to learn how. It, having those values doesn't change anything. And what's happening now is that we're, this, most of us now, and I would argue most listeners, are steeped in those new values. But we don't have a way to do it. So we're in a very um, tumultuous place with relationships. And I think that explains why there's so much conflict that feels often impossible to resolve. And therefore, the conclusion that I'm better off living alone. Right, because we're, we're living in the transition from one paradigm to another. Exactly. We haven't we haven't moved cleanly into the new paradigm. Yep. And even the newer generations still have parents that are still wrestling with those issues. Yep. So they're getting to to live with that experience. Exactly. So the 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 thing I want to emphasize is that there are tools, there are skills, relationship skills, and my judgment is we need them now. And they're not they don't exist in the mainstream of our society. They don't. Um, to, to we have to go out of our way to seek them out. You have to find them. And I'll, I'll uh, just give an example. I taught at Community College of Vermont. Um, I was delighted to discover 23 years ago, 24 years ago now, that they had a course called Interpersonal Communication Skills. They also... Uh, later ad- uh, adopted a course called Conflict Resolution mm. in their curriculum. And I applied to teach that course 24 years ago at CCV, and I taught it for 23 years in Community College of Vermont at, in sites up here in, in northern Vermont, Morrisville, St. Johnsbury, and Newport. And um, every class I taught, I'd have students who would come up to me and say, why didn't I learn this in high school? Why didn't I learn this in elementary school? Why don't people know about this? Why didn't my parents tell me about this? Why didn't my parents tell me about this? Mm -hmm. And all I could tell them was, this is relatively new, the concept of relationship skills, and my judgment is it'll take a few generations 
to catch on, and um, and I think it will. And that we're just at the beginning. So my part of my work is is describing the skills and helping people take the very first steps in applying them. And since you're talking about your work, I should let people know that I'm speaking with Miles Schertz. He's the author of Conscious Communication Beyond Perception. He's a couples counselor, mediator, and he has a retreat center up in the Northeast Kingdom called Sky Meadow Retreat, where he has various sorts of retreats, meditation retreats, um, I would imagine you you also have interpersonal communication retreats and and other things. And we, I also work with couples uh, around specifically around communication. So mm-hmm. because as everything I just mentioned explains to me a good amount of the conflict that we experience in our primary intimate relationships, and it's not the only solution, but I think part of the part of the solution to the issue of how to maintain an intimate relationship is learning skills. Yeah. And and to tie up threads from our conversation a moment ago, what the skills do is they they offer a vehicle, a way to talk about the things that we didn't know how to talk about, to share the 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 old mistakes that we've made to have a sense of acceptance around them and forgiveness for ourselves and other people. That's what relationship skills do primarily is they, they, for example, give us a way to listen to people, other people and understand them without judging them. Big, big step. And then to talk about ourselves and our, and our emotions and our needs without blaming other people. It's another huge step. Those are the, those are the, what the skills do. And as we learn to do that, we'll be able to connect much more intimately and maintain our individuality we we can still have our own feelings and needs and they don't have to they don't have to match those of the other person to feel connected however we can really get each other we can really understand each other and part of that is understanding how different we are and being able to accept that and being able to accept that that being different isn't isn't threatening doesn't necessarily mean that one of us is right and one of us is wrong doesn't mean that at all so and perhaps we don't have to engage so much in self-judging and judging others and the fear of being judged by others that's the that's the way out of this isn't it that's the that's the ultimate uh resolution to this dilemma we're talking about whereas where which is i can't live with people and i can't live without them is that maybe what's more clear to say is i can't live with other people's judgments and if you're really and with our own judgments yeah if you're yeah. really honest that would also include i can't live with my own judgments and the problem is we just don't know how our mind is so judgmental of ourselves and other people and it, that, it boil, i think it it boils back to that that old saying that you can't solve a problem with the same kind of thinking that created it or that you're seeing it through that's really important it's really and that's where meditation can be extremely beneficial and learning new tools yep 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 so what you know what meditation does i call my book beyond perception because it's it's describing a state of being that doesn't require 
perception. And if you and if you think about what perception means, it's everything. Perception is everything that we know about the world is through our mental um, understanding. It's through the way our mind translates into words, into ideas and images, everything that we experience. That's perception. And we're talking about getting beyond that, doing something, experiencing ourselves as, and the alternative to perception is awareness. And awareness is, as we've talked about earlier in the show, is just feeling your body as it is now is the beginning of awareness. And in awareness, there is no judgment. That's the, that's the magical. When, when, we, when we can relax. When, when we, we get to the place where we can relax and let go of, of all of the, the old issues, the, the, con- the inner conversations, the judgments, the, the old stories, the old memories. Yeah. Even if it's just for a moment, yeah. we're, there's, none of us are going to be able to completely let go of it all continually or, yeah. or relax to the point where none of that goes on f- ever again. But allow ourselves a few moments and you can create a practice where you can allow yourself a few moments each day for a little peace inner peace and inner relaxation it makes an incredible difference not only for ourselves but to what we can bring to others and to our relationships yeah yeah and i i totally concur don't don't expect if you're if you're trying meditation whatever that means to you and we're talking about it here in very simple terms just taking a moment to take a breath and feel your body taking the breath that's all you're doing in that moment that's that's enough to bring you present in that moment and add another moment and you're just starting to build a, a, what I call a platform of presence, like a, 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 a foundation a foundation of presence. Or what some people call the ground of being. The ground of being, yeah. 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 And the what, ultimate foundation. Yeah, and what you're saying is don't expect to try meditation and suddenly have no judgments. That's very... Or that it's going to solve all the problems of your life or necessarily any of the problems of your life. Mm. You, you can't really go into it with, with expectations like that. Sure. But you can find some peace amidst the chaos of life. Yeah, and as you just said... Or just the perceived chaos of life. Yeah, just a moment of where you're not flooded with judgments. Just a moment where there's a gap in the story is enough for now, to start to undo that... Um, it's a taste. It's, it's a, a taste. glimpse. Sure, yeah. 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 And that, that's a g- wonderful starting point. Yeah. It's like when you taste something really delicious for the first time, you go, ooh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm going to remember that. Yeah. I want more of that. I want more of that. And the g- wonderful thing is you can. Yeah. You can have more. Yeah. It takes a bit of effort, and you have to, you, you have to make an effort to do it. Yeah. But it's not that hard. No. And it's available to all of us. It doesn't cost anything. Yeah. It's available in any moment, yeah. each moment, yeah. no matter what has happened in, in, in the previous moment. Yeah. You can always return. Yeah. So, in a sense, you can go home again. Sure. Home, home being here now. Yeah. 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 Hmm... <laughs> it 
a little music to take a little weight off our shoulders. But we can jump in at any moment mm. when we're ready. Mm. This is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We're talking this morning about why have relationships? What's the point? In fact, that's the that's the language that my daughters use. We started this show with a simple um, comment that my teenage daughters have said to me many times, which is, um, you know, I don't I don't want to have relationships. I want to live alone. And then I'll start to question them about that, and they'll inevitably say, "What's the point?" So that's what Tony and I have been talking about, is what, what's the point? And one of the things that um, I think we could summarize here is that um, what we're afraid of when, when we're afraid to get close to other people is usually we're afraid of other people's judgments. And we don't, we don't know how to deal with that, we don't want to deal with it, so we keep things superficial. And it's worth mentioning that um, I think Tony and I agree that a lot of the electronic um, social media platforms, the issue I have with them is that they maintain superficiality. Um, the, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm sure they serve some other wonderful purposes, but I don't see them enabling a vulnerability and a depth. Uh, I think they could, but I don't, th- I think the tendency is not to use them to that end. Yeah. I mean, typically, when, when I, I coach people a lot, I teach. Um, conscious communication skills. I'm a professionally trained mediator, and a lot of my work is 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 either directly intervening with couples and being a facilitator and a and a um, couples coach, or with individual people. I coach people a lot in how to have difficult conversations, and the and the ten and the uh, direction that I'm always coaching them in is language and and approaches to other people that enable them to be vulnerable, more vulnerable while at the same time protecting themselves, while at the same time knowing how to put up a boundary. And I think that's a really important um, thing to mention this. We've been talking a lot about vulnerability. Um, and, right, you know, I would expect a number of listeners to say, well, I, you know, why would I want to be more vulnerable? Um, when I got an interesting story here is when I got back from the monastery, I was 19, I was still I was probably 20 years old at that point, and I'd spent a month in a Buddhist monastery in Asia, and it totally changed my life. And I went to see my old uh, college roommate, who had been the first person to suggest meditation to me. Uh, and <clears throat> I thought, you know, he might understand what I'd just been through. And I was explaining it to him, because I was desperate for somebody to understand 
this transformation that had just occurred to me. And I told him that I was becoming much more sensitive. I was becoming essentially more vulnerable. Uh, I related earlier in the show the story about uh, feeling the pain that I'd caused my brother while I was on that retreat as a 19-year-old. And essentially that made me, put me in a much more vulnerable position. I was feeling my vulnerability. And my friend looked at me and he got quiet and he said, why in the world would you want to be more vulnerable and more sensitive in this world? <clears throat> really struck me that the attitude most of us have is that that's dangerous. That's not a wise thing to do. Um, I was thinking about it yesterday and how we put so much effort into not being vulnerable. Um, and that by doing that, one of the things we do is isolate ourselves. And then we wonder why we feel so alone, why we feel so separate. And I posit that that pain of loneliness is one of the biggest burdens that we as humans carry, is the sense that nobody understands me, nobody gets me. So what we're talking about here today is how do we allow ourselves to be vulnerable with other people? And one of the things that's really important to acknowledge is that there's a way to do that that also um, you also have the capacity to protect yourself. But protecting yourself isn't by building a cement wall, which is how we normally do it. We normally protect ourselves by having a permanent kind of a barrier we, as my daughters say, you know, not getting too close to other people, then I'll feel safe. The problem with the permanent wall is that it also isolates you. You're behind the wall, and you don't ever get that sense of intimacy that requires vulnerability. So the trick, I think, and part of the skills I teach, uh, I teach a skill called supportive listening, which is the listening to other people to understand them without employing your judgments. So it's an active practice. It's not easy to do it. It's an active practice where you set aside your judgments and you're just being, being an open receptacle to hear and understand how other people are feeling and what they're needing. The other skill that's equally important that I teach is called assertion. And assertion is you setting boundaries for yourself. It's you saying a simple boundary setter, for example, is I feel uncomfortable with the way you're talking to me. It's a way of telling the other person that you're not feeling safe or comfortable or okay with what's going on. And it does, it's not meant to be a barrier. It's not meant to be a judgment of them. It's meant to be a signal to talk about it <laughs> because a boundary is being crossed in that moment. One of your personal boundaries is being crossed. So the art of conscious communication is is allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And what allows you to be vulnerable is knowing that you can set a personal boundary in a very um, simple, it's not easy, but simple and non, in a way that doesn't threaten or hurt the other person. Call that assertion. And, it's, and again, it sounds like it usually begins with owning and describing a feeling you're having. I feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm not feeling safe. I feel afraid right now. Just acknowledging what's going on for you as a way of, number one, taking care of yourself, and number two, bringing to the surface that something is happening right now that you're not feeling good about, so you can discuss it with the other person. And being sensitive to ourselves. Because so that, that's being in a sensitive. flexible way, because yeah. it's going to change from moment exactly. to moment. Sometimes you're going to be more sensitive than others. And, and, and we need to honor that 
for ourselves. Right, and and you you every situation will be different. So some situations will make you uncomfortable, and others won't. So that's why the old way of protecting yourself by having this wall around you is just archaic. It's very ineffective because you don't have the capacity to take it down mm-hmm. <laughs> and put it back up again. The new form of, of, of self-care is knowing when to say no and knowing how to say no. No, that doesn't feel good. Or no, know when the wall is is needed, needed and useful. Exactly. To be able to... I, I think of it more like a stop sign than a wall. Mm-hmm. It's more like... It's more like saying, no, I don't feel comfortable with this. It's kind of like a yellow light. It's a yellow it's like, light. pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. It's a yellow light. It's not a brick wall. And we don't know how to do that. So we, do, we either do the brick wall, nobody gets in, or we let everybody in. Right. And that's the only way that my parents knew how to do it. They didn't have any other tools. So we now have this elegant set of tools. I call them conscious communication. They come in different forms. Other people have called them different things. They're all, a lot of them based on the same basic concepts, and it doesn't matter which one you use. But to know that there are tools, there are skills, and in our paradigm, as you mentioned earlier, we're in a new paradigm. We're in a we're in between paradigms. We're and moving into a new paradigm. We're moving into a new paradigm, and we haven't landed in that new paradigm fully, which is, I think, what, one of the reasons our lives and our particularly our, our intimate relationships feel so chaotic right now. And it, our whole society. And our whole society, because we're in we're moving into this new paradigm, but we haven't. Um, we haven't enabled ourselves to achieve the things we want to achieve because we haven't learned the skills. And so I'm just simply announcing to the world that there are skills. They're simple and they're very effective and we need them. And now is a wonderful time to start. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a website. Yes, thank you. So yes, so I teach uh, conscious communication. I have a book called Conscious Communication. for listeners in, in the GDR area, it's it's uh, on sale and available at the Hunger Mountain Food Co-op. They've been really good about carrying that book for me. Um, of course, it's also on Amazon.com. And uh, if you want to avoid dealing with people, if you want, <laughs> if you want to avoid dealing with people, uh, but support the food co-ops and uh, get, go look for it there if you want. It's also an ebook if that's your preference. Um, and I teach those skills in different forms. One of the uh, um, most readily available is I work with couples around those skills at our retreat center in Standard, Vermont. And our website there is skymeadowretreat.com. You can learn more about my work, um, various offerings at the retreat center, and set up a private couples session or private couples retreat if that's what you're interested in. Um, I also am available to teach workshops and and um, fo- in any particular focus that has to do with communication skills or conflict resolution. Um, and I, my other uh, teaching that I do is uh, meditation. So I teach a form called insight meditation, which comes from the Buddhist tradition. And we have retreats up at our retreat center that are silent, um, intensive, usually just a weekend, and a great chance to do some of the inner awareness work that we've been talking about on this show is is through the practice of meditation. And again, I'm not uh, I'm not um, promoting one particular form. It's the form that I teach. I find it um, to be the simplest and the least has the least amount of baggage. Um, but I know there's many different forms of meditation, and I think they're all useful. So, so, so describe what a one of these three day weekend 
retreats would would look like for somebody who's never done one? Yeah, so an uh, 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 insight meditation retreat and the way I do it follows a fairly traditional format where there's an introductory evening on Friday evening. People come around dinner time and we start with a nice meal and people get landed. And then after dinner, we'll talk about the weekend and what to expect and get people ready. And then when as people go to bed on Friday night, we enter silence. And for the rest of the weekend until uh, lunchtime on Sunday, there's no speaking uh, and there's and there's even no eye contact. So it's and a lot of students tell me initially that they're uh, have trepidation about that, and many many people tell me by the end of the weekend that they they don't want to talk again. They don't not ever, but they're not ready. They're <laughs> no not more relationships. No more relationships. <laughs> they're not ready to start communicating. Um, one of the things that happens is you develop this. You you become aware of the. Uh, real rich nature of nonverbal connection and communication. And one of the most powerful things that the silence does and the no eye contact is that it removes you from that desperate need for seeking other people's approval. It's a very beautiful and powerful medicine for unhooking from that. And that's usually why people are scared of it because you're not getting for all day Saturday and Sunday morning, you're not getting anybody else's approval. And what happens is that you have to source it from yourself because it's not coming from anywhere else. Um, the rest of the structure is, is a traditional format. We sit for usually 35 minutes in silence and I give a lot of instruction and support. And then we walk for 20 minutes in silence and the walking meditation gives you a chance to experience presence and mindfulness in a moving format. Um, and then there's lovely meals and some personal time to do whatever you like. Uh, and at the end of the retreat, we have a, a um, circle sharing. T- people talk about their experience, and then we do a closing. And it's a great chance to develop a meditation practice or try it out if you're interested in it. Um, we Our next retreat is not till October, uh, <laughs> so there's a bit of a waiting time there. But we have a, a weekend insight meditation retreat on the schedule for the very first weekend in October, which is the height of the leaf season up in the Northeast Kingdom. And silence is a pretty wonderful and amazing thing which reminds me of a joke <laughs> there's this um, monastery in Ireland and they observe strict silence but once a year one of the monks gets to say one thing so that time of the year rolls around and monk stands up and says I can't stand the mashed potatoes here. They're too lumpy. And then he sits down, and that's it. Another year (laughs) rolls by, and the next monk gets up and says, I rather like the mashed potatoes here. And he sits down. (laughs) And then another year goes by, and then the next monk gets up and says, I want to be transferred out of here. I can't stand the constant bickering. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. So, I've been speaking with Miles Schertz. He's the author of Conscious Communication, Beyond Perception. He's a couples counselor and mediator has a uh, 
retreat center up in Northeast Kingdom in Stannard, Vermont, called Sky Meadow Retreat, and his website is skymeadowretreat.com. It's been great having you back. This mm. was a really delicious conversation. I enjoyed it. It was very delicious. Uh, yeah. That's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. Try a little mindfulness, a little relaxation, a little silence in your life, and perhaps even a little meditation, a little quiet time, a little peace in your life. Mm. So thank you again, Miles. My, my pleasure, Tonya. Thank you.